0: orbiting Earth in the spaceship. I saw how beautiful our planet is. People, let us preserve and increase this beauty, not destroy it. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin.
1: did De- 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 oh, oh yeah, baby. yeah, baby, Yuri Gagarin.
0: Oh, what a man. What hey. an
1: impression.
0: I'll tell you what, a, a fantastic impression if I do say so. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that's exactly how he spoke. Um, Matt, what does Yuri Gagarin mean to you?
1: A living legend, although he's dead. <laughs> how ace is the first thing he said when he was back on Earth. Apparently, when he landed on the 12th of April, 1961... Yeah. Obviously, he was just landing randomly somewhere in the vastness of the Soviet Union yes. at the time. Some woman went up to him and said, Can it be that you have come from outer space? And Gagarin's reply was, uh, As a matter of fact, I have. <laughs> Has Gagarin suddenly morphed into Roger Moore? I imagine Gagarin was a bit like, a sort of Bond-style character. What is more Bond than than being the first
0: man to orbit Earth? Yeah. Yeah his, yeah, yeah, la- yeah, his landing was a bit of a scary one, wasn't it? A bit hairy. It's his birthday on Saturday. I, for one, Matt, am going to be raising a glass of something cool and alcoholic well, vodka. to Yuri. You're going Voddy.
1: Straight Vody? Straight Vody. Well, our man yeah. at Al Worden would be very happy with that. Big time. Jamie, Yeah. did you see the Bersheet the little selfie that it took this week. I did. It's it's quite it's quite stunning, isn't it? Yeah. Small country, big dreams, with a with the earth sort of captured or by the all the sort of gold foil of the spacecraft. It just it is, looks incredible. What what a shot. It's
0: almost as if it was fake. But guess what? It's not. It clearly shows
1: the earth as being a sphere as well, doesn't it? Sorry, flat-tards. Um, <laughs> Jamie, do you like the band OK
0: Go? I do, actually. Yeah, I believe they're fellow Brightonians, aren't they?
1: Oh, is that right? I, th- they, they I might be wrong about that, but I think they are. Remember their really cool video that they did in one of those Vomit Comets?
0: Yeah, amazing. They always had
1: great music videos. Well, they're, they're uh, partnering, again, in a space-style thing to to get some students to create art that will be taken up on a future New Shepherd mission. Ooh, I like that. That's fairly cool, isn't it, for a band to be doing something like that? Can we Quite like also that. submit some art,
0: or do we have to be a student between the ages of eleven and eighteen?
1: Well, I think it might be eleven and eighteen. Yeah, of which you could get away with. I'm not oh, so sure I can anymore.
0: I don't think I can, Matt. I'm forty.
1: <laughs> I'm forty and about two weeks it's a horrible thought oh yeah listeners don't forget to wish jamie a happy 40th birthday in two weeks time oh uh, you know i mean so I'm get, not let's say- get them prepared now i'm not let's saying them-
0: send all your gifts on 19th of march but if you oh, want to no. oh man we're gonna have to employ an intern to open all that mail i reckon yeah right. interplanetary hq is going
1: to be swamped <laughs> with parcels matt what's <laughs> happening um with mars insight our favourite German mole, the German mole, yes, is uh, having a few difficulties as it's digging down. It's um, it, it's 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 hit some kind of blockage, oh. so that it seems to have hit a rock. It's a bit like you know when you go camping and you're whacking in tent pegs, yeah, and then occasionally when you whack in a tent peg, it's it just doesn't want to go in, and you you have to kind of reset the peg and try it somewhere else. Yes, I'd imagine it's a little bit like that. Except, frustratingly, millions of miles away, so it's mm. a slightly harder problem to deal with. Yeah, that's kind of annoying. Is there any way around it? Well, they're going to pause it for a couple of weeks yeah. and work out what they're going to do. But they, they can carry on doing some of the experiments with the mole, turn it on and turn it off and turn it on again. They might do, but they yeah, they're going to spend a couple of weeks working out what they're what they're going to do. What NASA and DLR are going to work out Insight, what they're going to do. Insight says no. This is a weird one. You would have thought that this had happened before, but later this month we might see the first all woman spacewalk. I can't believe that hasn't happened, but okay. So this is so this is Anne McLean and Christine Cock. Christina Koch, yes. Um, Christina Cock's not even on the International Space Station yet. She's going up in a on a on a Soyuz mission quite soon. Good luck, everyone. Uh, I mean, yeah. I can't believe that hasn't happened before. Uh no. long overdue. Now, Jamie, I know you're a massive fan of this mission. Did you see the video that the Japanese released of the Hayabusa spacecraft landing on Ryugu? Matt, this is an open, safe forum,
0: isn't it? Yes, I might have watched it repeatedly for about an hour.
1: Um, now I'm a little bit worried about your mental stability. I just,
0: I, I just, I, when I'm watching these things, I imagine being there. I imagine being up there, Matt. That's where that's why it's exciting for me. That and the fact that it's it's named after one of the Street Fighter II characters.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that was their inspiration, but hey. You'd kind of related this story to asteroid mining. Yes. But Ryugu looks apparently a little bit like it's made of pumice stone. Not oh. quite sure how not quite sure how valuable that is.
0: Maybe they could send a load down because I'm sure that all of the shops in Blackpool and Brighton are running out of uh, exotic gemstones uh, to sell (laughs) to uh, tourists.
1: Yeah, I don't think pumice kind of (laughs) falls into that exotic uh, category. Uh, Another close call for the Hubble Space Telescope as well. So the advanced camera for surveys had a bit of a wobble. Oh. And uh, a one-time anomaly. This is the kind of thing that would really stress me out. Apparently, they re- they rebooted it and it's working fine. So it's just a one-time anomaly. But that's the kind of thing that I lose sleep over. I love that it always comes down to just
0: switching it off and turning it <laughs> on again.
1: Yeah. It's, <laughs> just, <laughs> it's just like in any office IT department. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And I suppose the last small bit of news that we've got for this week was is that the French CNES you are going to be helping ISRO with, with their human spaceflight program. Ah, okay. Now, I can't remember what India call their uh, astronauts, but they're traveling to Paris, or traveling to France anyway, to do train in microgravity research and space medicine. No way. Yeah. Do you think they're going to be going into the buoyancy pool that me and you love so dearly? Oh, yeah, but that's in Germany though, isn't it? So Yeah, but have
0: they got one in Paris
1: or France? I don't, I, I don't know. I. I wouldn't we'll have, have to, to ask so, our but... mate Julio, won't we?
0: Julio. Julio, can you tell us, is there a buoyancy pool in
1: the country of France? <laughs> Answers on a postcard. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> I like <laughs> so, it. So what was a close call for us this week, Jamie? Well, I'll tell
0: you what was a close call, Matt. I'm going to say to you 2015, or we could just say
1: 2015, EG. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you? I don't know where these asteroids get then... Names from these
0: to be fair, the, I don't two-some... know what e g means, but 2015 no. obviously was the year that it was discovered uh so it flew past Earth on March the fourth, and mm-hmm. uh luckily for us, Matt, i mean even though they say it's uh relatively close, it was two hundred and seventy four thousand miles away. But this thing, Matt, it was as big as a jumbo jet,
1: big as a jumbo jet, twenty five meters across. Yeah. So if you want to get a, a sort of feel for yeah. for how close that was, the JPL uh, website, the Small Body Database browser. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you go onto that, you can see the orbit of two thousand and fifteen EG and how it intersects with Earth twice a year and Venus twice a year. Oh, so right. it's as so this thing. One day may just smash straight into us. So I mean it, it looks way more hairy when you see it in perspective to the size of the solar system. I was gonna say, when you get your dinner plate or football analogies on, it's quite scary. Yeah, so when you when you when you think about the size of the solar system, this thing that is very, very close for an object of that size. It's quite dangerous. It's actually slightly tilted on the ecliptic as well. So that actually is in our favour. So it means that there's lots of times where even if it was on a direct path for us, it might be too or high or too low, under you know, too far above the ecliptic or below the ecliptics to actually hit us. Well, but it, it, it's, quite, it's quite frightening. It is a bit
0: frightening. Sort of well, yeah. NASA say that it's one of one of five uh, near Earth asteroids uh, mm. on its on its radar, uh, but this one came the closest, and they said that there's nearly seventeen thousand huge near Earth objects o- objects yet to be discovered. So, mm. how safe are you feeling?
1: That <laughs> yeah, that so it, what, what is that half? So they know about seventeen thousand, and they think that's only half of them. Uh, I couldn't work that bit out. <laughs> that, that's, that's quite a big one, 25 meters across. But there's much bigger ones out there that, that get pretty close. Even a small asteroid, if it, if, it, if it came in at the right angle and hit a city, would be devastating. It would be. And Matt, you love a stat.
0: How fast do you think this thing's traveling? Relative to us. Yeah. I don't know. Give us a. 24,000 miles an hour. That'd be bad if it hit us. That would hurt,
1: wouldn't it? It would probably knock you out, wouldn't it? Oof. But <laughs> just remember the, the other stat, that no one has ever been killed by an asteroid. But Matt, <laughs> I was in Los Angeles last week,
0: Clang, mm-hmm. and I went to the amazing, and if you haven't been, and if you're going to go to LA, please, mm-hmm. listeners, go to the Griffith Observatory in Griffiths Park, and it's it's absolutely amazing. And they had a photo in there of a woman that, that got uh hit by an asteroid. And um
1: and yeah, it was a huge scar on her side. But she didn't die. She didn't die, no. On this day, four hundred and one years ago. Yeah. The very thing that describes how these asteroids whiz around the solar system. The third law of planetary motion I know was it discovered well. by Johannes Kepler. Oh, Keppers. I love Keppers. Oh, Keppers, 1618 on this very day. What a legend. And also, I'd like to have a little shout out for a Greek physicist and astronomer who's done loads for astronomy and astronomy education yeah. and popularizing science, and that's Dionysus. I'm sure our Greek listeners know all about him. And he did spend a lot of some time in America, so maybe our American uh, listeners know about him as well. But, yes, he's he's a giant in popularising science and especially astronomy.
0: Absolutely. Happy birthday. Happy
1: 76th birthday. Happiest of birthdays, old boy. So one thing we must talk about, Jamie, of course, is SpaceX's demo mission one. I think we absolutely need to speak about that. What what what's the scory? So, SpaceX DM One, yeah, is the orbital test of the human rated Dragon Two spacecraft. Which so let must... me get this straight: this
0: was a test of its capsule that, if proves well and safe. That mm-hmm. one day we will see humans in that thing, but more important—well, not more importantly, but very importantly still—launching from America for the first time since what, twenty eleven?
1: Twenty eleven. Yeah. So it feels like that 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 is a very long time, mm. don't you think? Well, hopefully, if the in-flight abort test that's happening in June goes well, and we're only halfway through this mission as we talk, the demo mission one, um, and uh, David Baker, who's our guest today, will be talking about a little bit about that because the hardest bit is definitely the re-entry bit because it's a it's a novel shape the Dragon capsule. So it'd be really interesting to see how that all works. How uh, amazing
0: but, was it, Matt, watching it just link with the uh, dock, dock with the ISS? I mean, yeah, just- well, see that.
1: That was the that was the exciting bit. Everyone stayed up and was getting very excited about the launch, and I found that deeply underwhelming because it it was just really another, you know, Falcon Nine launch with a Dragon capsule on it. It Was it's it's not like it just was very routine, and so I'd. But yes, the docking is the first time, of course, that SpaceX have done an autonomous dock. So normally, SpaceX Dragons they are birthed. To the International Space Station, meaning that some clever astronaut, Tim Peake, I believe, did it uh, using the Canadarm mm. or Canadarm Two to grapple it and uh, bring it onto the International Space Station. Incredible stuff!
0: And it wasn't well; it wasn't alone, was it? I mean, there wasn't any
1: humans on it, Matt. But what? Was, no. Who was on board? Ripley. Love that. One of my favorite sci-fi characters of all time, possibly the first serious female protagonist who who took a film into the stratosphere. How very, very amazing Alien those films. is definitely Yeah. Alien is definitely one of my favorite films. It it it's so brilliant. On so many levels. What, and what
0: everyone fantastic. who always says, Oh yeah, but aliens is better. It's like, yeah, but it's it no, definitely no,
1: isn't no. as tense, is it? <laughs> well, it's it's not as groundbreaking. I love aliens, don't get me wrong, but Alien, wow, that is a film. Yeah, I'm with you. Um yeah. So guess what? So it docked at the International Docking Adapter, which is the so it's the first craft to do so. And that uh what that that was installed by astronauts Jeff Williams and Kate Rubins back in August 2016. So it's been waiting a long time for someone while. to at for someone to actually use it. And do, you, do the the irony is that the original international docking adapter was destroyed on what spacecraft? Oh. Oh yeah, a SpaceX Dragon. Wow. It was destroyed in the CRS-7 launch. So yeah, they've had they had to swap around the international uh, um, docking adapters. So yeah, that's actually IDA two that's there because IDA one was destroyed in the CRS seven launch. Mm. Oh, I'd like to congratulate them, Matt. I, I do too, and and Musk was Musk was very good in that um, in the briefing afterwards. They they all looked really really tired. It was clearly in the middle of the night, and everyone <laughs> looked really tired. Even everyday astronauts seemed to be completely spaced out. Mm. Um, but Musk was very emotional. He's such a weird speaker, isn't he? The way he everything he kind of says. But he was very he was very quick to point out what a, that it was a. Um, very much a collaborative effort between SpaceX and NASA and that how how SpaceX wouldn't exist without NASA and and NASA are super important. So oh, he really kna- and he really nailed that that down. And he also said that he was very, very eager to point out that that he thinks his system is safer because it doesn't rely on a tractor technique mm. that the um Soyuz relies on because it's got these Draco engines so- side mounted Thruster pods with two super Draco engines each that uh, are, that are able, to, well, basically integrated into the actual capsule itself as the launch escape. So that that should make it safer. But we'll see when this thing re-enters whether that those odd shaped little noses will um will will affect anything. Matt, so have you ever been stuck behind a tractor
0: on a small country lane in England? No, but have you ever seen the film The Nightmare? Tractor?
1: Have you ever seen the film The Tractor?
0: I can't say I have. Is it about mm. tractors? No, I've I, I've only seen the trailer.
1: Oh Christ! Sorry, everyone. Now, come on, that's a genius! That's a that's genius actually, gag. It's actually pretty good, and I'm definitely stealing that and using it tonight. There was one thing I noticed that was reported in Sputnik. Ah, yes. The Russians said that they smelt or or detected elevated levels of isopropyl alcohol after the Crew Dragon spacecraft had oh. docked. Uh, and that there'd been an unusual smell from the spacecraft, but NASA didn't report any issues. So, someone sneaking some aftershock on board or something. I a lot of people are very excited about this particular demo mission one, but to be honest, I think Better and Changi Four are so much more exciting at this point. I'll yeah, be excited no offense, when the guys, but that I do. Yeah, I'll be I'll be more excited when we see people on board. But even then, really, it's just it's just the lift up to the International Space Station for the time right. being. And um, I do think SpaceX have done an amazing job to be able to do this. And 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 well and very, you know, it's it's very, very impressive. Well I but- think what's
0: exciting about it is it's it's you have to look at look at it from the perspective of not just, yeah, they're taking people to the space station, which we're used to, been used to for years but that this is the first step to them taking people elsewhere. And that, Mm. for me, is the point.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm just a little bit disappointed that, you know, it's not a radical departure from design from the the vehicle that took Yuri Gagarin into orbit, and it's going to do an ocean splashdown, so there's none of these retro burners to, to land that we thought that Dragon was going to have. It's not going to be reusable as a human spaceflight vehicle, so they're going to just be using it as a cargo vehicle on its reuse.
2: So oh, okay.
1: when you think about the Space Shuttle, in some ways, if the Space Shuttle had a major payload on board... It was actually cheaper per seat than than the uh than the Crew Dragon, which which is a bit oh, weird, isn't it? Really? it was something like, yeah, the it's it's apparently something like fifty-eight million dollars a seat, uh compared to something in the eighty million dollar mark for the Soyuz. So that's a good saving. But well, we'll, the shuttle we'll the, sh- Yeah, the shuttle was sometimes as cheap as forty three million dollars a seat. So no. what do you yeah. get with that, Matt? Do you get I mean, do you get snacks or, I mean... You get one of those, you know, you get one of those eye masks and you get some comfortable slippers.
0: Oh, you get the socks that don't give you deep vein thrombosis. And you do get free free champagne on board. But Matt, what do we know about champagne in space?
1: You just get a little bit gassy. Where's all that gas go? So what else has been happening? Jamie, do you want to hear my space word of the week? Do I? It's another German thing like Moll, except this time it's Mollweide. That does sound German. So, Mollweide is a type of map, or sometimes known as the Babinet projection. When you make maps, you have to kind of do a projection of what you're trying to map. But of course, most things are on globes, flat earthers, you fools. And um, <laughs> it's very, very hard to get it onto a flat surface. And when you do, you distort one of the properties. So you've got area, shape, direction, bearing, distance, scale, those kind of things. Yeah. Now, every time you make a map, you have to sacrifice some of those things. But different maps are very good at different things. Now, the Möhlweide is very good at keeping an equal area. So the area is is kept good. And it's you'll know the Möhlweide because the... Cosmic microwave background map—the very, very famous one, the sort of green and yellow and red Mm. splodges—that you look at and everyone goes, "What is that?" And I'm going to—the reason why I want to mention it is because my little science story that's been blowing my mind all month, basically—and I just wanted to get it out. Tell us about (laughs) it. Just go blah. But uh, because uh, yes, sit down on the the couch, Matt. Put your feet up. Because yes, the, the cosmic microwave background and star maps and weather system maps are all on these oval-shaped Vider projections. And so, when you have a map of the Earth, obviously you're looking outside onto a sphere. But when you're looking at these, when you're looking at star maps and CMB maps, it's you're looking from inside the globe at this oval. So ah. So yeah. Yes. So yeah. And so this, it, it's. Yes, I mean, it's just incredible. So what I want to talk about, Jamie, is this thing called baryonic acoustic oscillations. Oh, finally. Yeah. Because we mentioned them, we mentioned them with Sunyev's birthday a couple of weeks ago, or last week, yeah. and um, he'd he'd um, predicted them. And I wanted to talk about them because I, I thought, well, I better read up about them. And and now my mind is completely blown because they're well, some absolutely incredible things.
0: You sent me some notes and it's like war and peace. Yeah. So I, I'd like you to, uh, you know, okay. narrow,
1: narrow it down a bit. We're going to have to start from the beginning. There was the Big Bang, okay, 13.7 billion years ago. Uh-huh. Right? And then the universe passed through probably more phases and had more change and more activity in the first second than all the billion years since. But I'm going to start my story um <laughs> after the universe was about 1 millionth of a second old we're all sitting right? comfortably here we go so after 1 millionth of a second until about 379,000 years the universe was just plasma so by plasma there are no atoms it was just electrons protons neutrons some other baryonic matter dark matter and photons because it was just too hot for atoms to form so it's just far too much energy for the neutrons and the well for the protons to capture the electrons just too much energy right but when something's a plasma and you've got this massively hot intense soup as it were of the photons can't move around like they do in everyday life that we see now so photons can just move in straight lines hence we can see things in lines of sight Yes, but they can't do that in this plasma soup. They just bump into electrons because the electrons are free and now and interact with the photons. So they can't they can't move around. So there is this point where basically the early universe for the first three hundred seventy nine thousand years you could not see anything. There literally was no line of sight. Oh. But there is a point where. As the universe expands, and as you know, as something expands, it's got to be cooling down because this heat is, well, the energy is is, is over a lot larger and larger and larger area. And it's unbelievably large how, you, how how large the universe gets. At the point it starts to cool down, the suddenly the protons can grab the electrons and the first atoms in the universe are made and they're hydrogen. And this event happens when the plasma reaches about three thousand Kelvin, and um, and the and this is known as recombination. I don't know why recombination. If it's the first time it happened, it should be called combination, shouldn't it? Sure. Recombination, and it's one of the most important things that happens in the universe. And I cannot. What's brilliant is so much modern science and cosmology is based around this recombination event so at that point the photons are able to travel in straight lines and the observable universe at that point was about 42 million light years across mm. so this that shell that's expanding away from us is what you see in this moldvider map and it's the surface of it is called the surface of last scattering And that's exactly where this recombination event happened. It's the first time that there was lines of sight in the universe. So it's expanding and the light waves. But when we see it now, because the universe is expanding and expanding at ever faster rates, the the light at that time has been stretched also, and it's now in the microwave um, spectrum. It's been stretched so much, redshifted, to give it its correct term. So now it's in the microwave, so it's known as the, fa- the famous map of the cosmic microwave background, the spectrum of, of which is the most precise black body radi- radiation ever observed. And the theoretical curve of it is is literally impossible to tell apart from the actual measured curve of this black body radiation. Uh, so the universe since then has expanded. So now that the temperature has dropped down to 2.72 Kelvin, which is pretty much close to absolute zero but it's that tiny amount of heat and energy background radiation that is the is is the static on your tv set for example and was discovered and basically was one of the most amazing discoveries by uh, a couple of people with this horn antenna that they thought was pigeon poo and it turned out to be this <laughs> this uh, stunning bit of evidence that yes there really was this cosmic mi- microwave background and it and it essentially gave massive kudos to the big bang theory wow so anyway i want to talk about the acoustic oscillations that are happening at the time because this is the really interesting bit for me so of course you know i'm an, a, a, an old acoustician oh you love yes, that stuff yes yes so um so so Because there was no lines of sight, you think maybe what happened in the first 379,000 years of the universe, we'll never know about. But no, no, it's fossilised in this map, what happened. What's incredible is instead of being totally smooth, it's not totally smooth because when the universe was smaller than an atom, it it obviously had some quantum fluctuations in it, quantum randomness. And that quantum randomness leads to... Slightly different uh, densities in the early universe, which means that the dark matter starts falling into these slightly denser areas. And as the dark matter sort of falls in, it's like an anvil smashing against each other, and the photons are, t- are like w- trying to whiz and try and get away from it. And it's and it's essentially ringing like a bell. And these photons are taking the baryonic matter out with them in these acoustic ripples these acoustic actual sound waves that are traveling at half the speed of light because sound travels at half the speed of light in this plasma (laughs) so you can work out how big this acoustic bubble will get in this three hundred seventy nine thousand years that's like this kind of theory that this acoustic bubble would sort of expand out and you might be able to see it now get this When you measure the distances between lots and lots and lots of galaxies that you can see, so say if you just take a chunk of the night sky and then you just measure the distances between all the different galaxies that you can see, between every single one of them, you get this kind of lovely little straight line curve. But there's a bump in that curve, and the bump in the curve is where you have uh, the kind of outer ring of this uh, of this pressure wave where you'll have a slightly denser area as this sound wave is moving through, and, and there are more galaxies on that kind of ring. So, so it's kind of imprinted, fossilised in, in the night sky this acoustic, this original acoustic bubble. Yeah, that's oh.
0: absolutely mental. And I will definitely need to listen to this podcast about three uh, times
1: before uh, I fully understand it, Matthew. Well, yeah, I mean, but what wow. I should have mentioned is the, this acoustic bubble at, at the point of recombination essentially gets fossilised because it's it's no longer travelling at half the speed of light. It, it's travelling at a few hundred metres per second. Uh, and so it essentially gets tagged on to the, this ever-increasing bubble of the universe. The fact that you can measure it and it and it comes up to it the exact number that people thought it was going to come up with tells the scientists and the astronomers and the cosmologists that that this is like one of the most stunning <laughs> pieces of evidence. That is insane. I, I know, and, and that's not it. And that's like a sort of simplified version of it. Oh, that's not good for me, Matt. No, well, it's... a. Is there a simplified version of the simplified version? (laughs) So, well, yes, probably. But it's a stunning proof of dark energy as well. You know, the fact that that the universe is definitely expanding at ever a faster rate. So not only can you infer the dark matter from it, it's a stunning proof of dark matter. It's a stunning proof of dark energy. And if you look even closer at these acoustic oscillations, obviously it's not just... uh, just great big uh, sound waves coming out nice and evenly. It's actually uh, oscillating and sloshing around just like a, a chaotic loud room. Uh, and from all the uh, fluctuations in the heat, the anos- anisotropy, which we talked about actually in episode 70 uh, with ESA's Planck telescope, uh, measured this in absolutely stunning detail and if you map the power spectrum of the heat differences uh, of these oscillating peaks of, of all this acoustic sloshing around you can tell things like the density of the baryonic matter at the time the the, the curvature of the universe the uh the amount of dark matter it's it's just Absolutely incredible, and this is all because of these fossilized acoustic vibrations in the well, early. Can we universe. get some images of these maps uh, up online, please? Of course, yes. We'll, we will stick up the ESA's Planck uh, CMB map, the well, Moulvader Molv, map. That's that's my kind of planking. <laughs> Absolutely, Jamie. Yeah, I had a, a fantastic chat with David Baker this morning. Would you like to hear it? Uh, I
0: I love and I wait eagerly for these little chats.
1: Let's roll it. This is a good one. A good day. The Interplanetary
2: Podcast putting the ace back into space.
1: Hello David. How are you? I'm fine, Matt, and, and how are you today? I'm very well, thank you very much. Yes, it it's, looks like the weather's picking back up again. So, that's Well, I good. think something has to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's, it's kind of been another epic week or week and a half in, in, in space news. So where yeah. on earth are we going to begin
2: well well i think the you know hot off the presses they say i think really is the extraordinary mission of bereshit and a lot of the underlying imperative behind the motivation for for what is going on in israel with regard to its aspiring moon program and and of course the launch of this exciting mission which is using a very interesting trajectory in a series of of ever increasing apogee altitude in order to nudge it just to within the capture ellipse of the lunar gravitational environment. And that converts it then into into essentially the apogee of the, of the Earth orbit becoming the apogee of a lunar orbit via a propulsive nudge. But I think the thing that, that really caught my attention, which I haven't seen a lot about, is the fact that it is the arc, if you will, that's my interpretation—that's not official—for mm. <laughs> um, preserving what has been loosely termed, and it's a very um, um, difficult statement to make—all of human knowledge on nanofish technology, which it's carrying with it, and that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, well,
1: I, I, yeah. I mean, just as you were, just before we came to air, you mentioned that. Mm. I'm not, I'm not, I've, mm. I'd not heard that at all. I remember when we yeah. were. Doing Lunar Mission One, and that was one of the things that was talked about for that mission was to carry some form yeah. of archive, and of course, very much an archive of people's DNA as well. So, I suppose they're, they're, they've 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 run with that idea. But so, what, well, well, yes. uh, do, Is there is there any kind of partnership? Because I remember Lunar Mission One was sort of trying to par- partner with Wikipedia or or one of the sort of one of those organisations. Well, do you know yeah. what, Do you know what where they're getting mm-hmm. all of human knowledge from?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it starts with Wikipedia, but uh, but 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 once the laughing has has <laughs> fallen, <laughs> and we can we we can hear ourselves speaking again after that. Um, essentially, it's from the Arch Mission Foundation, mm. um, and it's its bold mission, going where none have gone before, is to preserve the memory of humanity and this is a very interesting underlying response to planetary care concerns with regard to environment with regard to the potential for losing vast storehouses of knowledge in the event of a human induced terrible tragedy such as might ensue after a a nuclear exchange of of major powers when where where a huge amount of of material is literally melted away, um, or indeed from some natural event such as um, such as a catastrophic incoming near Earth object. Mm. Um, and and there's, there's been a universality about this. And the Arch Mission Foundation is international, and it gathers together a bunch of academics and a bunch of serious philosophers in the field of preserving human knowledge. And 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 there are many people who are now very aware that, that, hey, you know, we really ought to think, well, we, we think we've got it now, but have we? And, and, you know, this for me began when we got into the digital age and we began preserving material in systems and substances, material substances that decay over time. Mm. So while we are seemingly putting so much onto digital storage capabilities the very means by which those storage devices age renders vulnerable the quality and indeed the integrity of the information they contain and this this has long been concerned to uh manufacturers aerospace companies who who have tended to put virtually everything now um on their own intranet within their own uh talk groups mm. aircraft manufacturers even and and Particularly, defence contractors um, have c- virtually eliminated paper bits of anything, and and people have been concerned to say, well, well, this actually CDs, DVDs mm. are not as durable as paper. They, what well, I think, the CD has an aging life of about 50 years and a DVD about 100 years and then everything is gone because it naturally decomposes away. So there's been this concern about we should put things off planet into environments in which they can be preserved irrespective of what happens here on Earth. And I think this is is a more um, purposeful commitment to extending our presence beyond planetary Earth. While we've talked about the means to go to other star systems, high-velocity propulsion that can take us out of the solar system within a meaningful number of years for research, etc., etc., we've never really answered the fundamental question, okay, well, how do we preserve what we've got anyway? Um, And and if this Earth did suffer a catastrophic event such as a global nuclear exchange or indeed an asteroidal impact of, of enormous proportions, then a vast amount of that would not be available for those remaining life forms that that, that humans mm. that pick up the pieces and from a new stone age move forward again uh, into their future, and, and so I was really taken with this, and I felt that it's really extraordinarily far-sighted and, and, and reassuring and, and essentially they're using data-centric structures, libraries banks government agencies, large corporations taking all of that information um, and essentially basing an analogue archival system uh, putting it onto Microfish which which of course has only been around since 1961 um, and that has to be in a very, very controlled environment and Microfish compared to the life of a DVD of 100 years has a life expectancy of 800 years and they're talking now about storing it in a way that self-replicating technology can pick up during the next 800 years to a much more sustainable preservation of data to pick up that and make it infinitely sustainable and we all know about the bio store of information in Spitzbergen. well this is essentially doing that off planet with all they're saying or as much of human knowledge as can be preserved and and recorded, and and that I think is is one of the most elevating and inspirational aspects of the Beresheet mission.
1: Yeah, and like say, it's it's really interesting. I mean, not only is it really hard to come up with systems of storing information, but you've also got yeah. this added one of signposting it. And I I I, yeah. I, I got really deep into that signposting thing as well where you say yeah. how on earth do we signpost this 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 archive and yeah. and because the the sign might have to last a billion years or, or you know so yeah. some incredible length of time and you go yeah. and that yeah. becomes there's some there's a there was a great study for burying nuclear waste somewhere and, and they were trying to signpost this nuclear waste and and they ended up yeah. abandoning it because they couldn't work out how they were actually going to signpost mm. it, something that would last more than, you know, a hundred years or two hundred years. Yeah. And it had to last has to had to last the half-life of the, of this uranium, of mm. course. Mm. <laughs> it was just mm. like mm. so mm. You, you've got the Mm. yeah it's a really interesting subject archiving material it it, it, it you're absolutely right and I, I i'd not i didn't spot that in the beresheet mission at all I, it just gets mm. just gets better the beresheet mission i'm i, I actually think yeah. it's really really exciting if it if we actually have a private landing a moon landing it's just i think that's an mm. incredible mm. incredible achievement
2: mm. Mm. well i think it's certainly the way that nasa wants to go but but May I just say as well, before we get off that with regard to the ARCH Mission Foundation, um, ARCH, not ARC, Mm -hmm. um, although it is an (laughs) ARC in many ways, um, this began with Elon Musk's um, Launcher Falcon Heavy because um, the... Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy was placed on a 5D quartz crystal disc, which was aboard Elon Musk's Tesla that was launched into heliocentric orbit by Falcon Heavy. And that orbit has got a 30 million year life. And that was a demonstration, essentially, launched for that. And then um, there was the Genesis project, which is this one that we're talking about with Space I um, which is on a twenty five layer nickel nanofish disc and is going to Mercerinatus. So <laughs> so so that may be the very means by which we begin the process of off planet storage in a big, big way, anticipating or or not anticipating, but at least as a backup to to a a seriously Debilitating event
1: on the earth. Yeah, yeah. One one book I I've I don't know if you've read it is a a book by Lewis Dartnell called The Knowledge, and that uh, that's such a (laughs) such a brilliant book about how you uh, just how how in the last sort of hundred years we've got so much technology that that to to try and to try and get back to where we are even even in a in a slightly catastrophic event is is incredibly just incredibly difficult there's no there's no there's no readily accessible oil that's that would be like one of the big problems that you've got no energy (laughs) so so, yeah Yeah. it's 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 a really fascinating subject
2: And I think that that loss of information is certainly being felt within the aerospace industry because the preservation of materials after the demise of the Apollo program left NASA having to to scurry around, trying to get the data from private sources. Um, I myself have been involved in that, in that NASA has on, on occasions had to come to many of us to get documents, to get materials, and to get knowledge and experience from the Apollo program that was completely lost when addressing the development of Orion and the Space Launch System. And in fact, even the National Air and Space Museum, well, I say even, the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., had to play a major part in allowing access to engineers to look at the Avco heat shield on the Apollo spacecraft because they had lost crucial data about the way that was put together and, and the very chemistry that was used in its manufacture. And of course, the heat shield on Orion was one of the things that ran seriously awry and had to be completely redesigned after the EFT mission um, of just a few years ago, when it came back and was fine and and, and did its job. But there's no way they could commit that design so i've had to go back again and find further information about how Abaco
1: did it for the Apollo program 50 years ago wow I mean, that was lost yeah, yeah. I mean and I remember seeing a documentary also about the skills that people have in terms of like almost like the artisan skills of making things like f1 engines where where it's it's yes. the engine just the engineering experience of hammering yeah. out the parts and things like that and of course that yeah. that's not something that you can really readily write down either so you lose all those skills, so building yeah. a new F1 engine, for example, would be would be almost impossible, because you you, yeah. a, you, yeah. haven't, you haven't got the data, but you also don't have mm. the physical mm. skills to do it, engineering skills.
2: You, you, you mentioned a moment ago about the extraordinarily wonderful um, uh, way in which private initiative is now underpinning a lot of the exploration missions that were in the purview of government, and, you know, NASA itself is feeling the strain from having to regain so much technology and, and yes, as you say, artisan knowledge about how to, how to do things. Um, after decades of leaving that environment and focusing on exclusively subtle related technologies, and right outside the boundaries of that, NASA is finding it unaffordable to be able to go laterally and do so many things that the public expects it to do with so little in terms of fiscal resources and money. And the the movement laterally to embrace private enterprise to put the new phase of exploration in a shared partnership between government and private enterprise is really al- almost skirting around the big heavy industries that historically have never preserved anything that they don't actually need. Um, history departments and, and history archives of the major aerospace manufacturers, those of us who have a penchant for, for history, are continually battering at the door of aerospace companies to preserve their archives. And so much material is found in skips out in the back lot of, of companies oh who, who have moved on. And, and you talk to so many people, particularly in the aircraft industry, who literally are, are backstreet scavengers going around the back lots of aerospace companies looking at what's been thrown, thrown out. And, and many people... I believe, will be nodding sympathetically as they listen to us talking about this now with regard to the fact that that is a real serious problem. Suddenly, when they need to go back and look at those days and extract quite technical... um detailed definitions and instructions on how they did things, they can no longer find them within their own facilities. So there is a lot of this with NASA holding its hand up and saying, sorry guys, we can't do this on our own. We need you outside in the bigger world moving faster, leaner, and more efficiently, instead of the massive corporations that monolithically uh, plod on like like very slow-walking Brontosaurus, um, whereas the little guys are fast and nimble and can work to resurrect a lot of these things that really have no serious financial value to major corporations and so it is the little guys it is the time of the little guys now in the space program which are doing things with so little you know that it really beggars belief that it could not have been done before in this way and i think this this appeal for nasa to go out and and to put seed money into a host of entrepreneurial in, endeavors and initiatives to to put science back on the lunar surface, but not by a government-led program, but by a government-supported infrastructure, the architecture for which is being built right outside NASA.
1: Yeah, I've I've noticed that Ariane have started to think about this as well. Like they've 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 seemed to have, I can't remember the name of what they it, there was a the, an announcement recently something maybe Ariane Next or something like that where where yeah. they where they were thinking of yeah, yeah how how you get these smaller companies involved and and getting much more nimble and and rolling that out. How is, how is this playing out for something like SLS then in
2: terms of Well, that's very very interesting because it's it's I, I think in in this business, we're, we're used to two steps forward and one step back. But when you go um, one step forward and two steps back, that's a little bit of a problem. And I, I think we're beginning to see this. And I think under the new um, Congress, which we now have for the first time, is going to be looking at the next NASA budget next week. That's announced, um, as as we speak, it's, it's actually set for Monday the 11th, which is the formal announcement of the next NASA budget, and that will have been influenced to a great extent by the change in Congress. When the hearings start in the spring, you're going to see potentially some breaks put on the SLS, I feel, because uh, particularly in the House, I think it'll get a, a sustained approval in the Senate, which has up. NASA's budget appreciably in the last two or three years, but um, I mean, it's still around 0.5 of a percent of total federal expenditure, so it's relative when I say upping it. It's it's just nudging it very slightly up, but certainly SLS needs more money. It needs more attention. It needs to to retrace some of the paths it's been walking along, which have proved absolutely dead-ended and complete cul-de-sacs. One of the major problems to SLS, is the continued extension of the launch date. And I was looking at the figures before we began speaking on this um, earlier today, and and back in 2016, NASA was very confident about a 2018 launch for Exploration Mission 1, the first flight of SLS. Now in 2019 is 2021. So we seem to be going two years ahead, always, <laughs> We go a year forward, and it's still two years away from the first flight. And while it had been projected up to the beginning of this year to have been flying by the end of next year, the expectation now is certainly well into 2021 before it can fly. So it's two years yet. Even though last year was supposed to be the year two years previously, it was expected to fly. And one of the problems has been this vertical welding concept, which they never should have gone down, um, I was quite involved with the friction stir welding process that was done by then Martin Marietta in doing the external tanks in a horizontal fabrication facility actually at Michou. and uh, the engineers came along for SLS and said oh no 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 no, no. that's old old school technology we, we, we can do much better and much more efficiently if we go to vertical welding it hasn't worked it's cost very much more to than if they'd simply gone ahead with the conventional horizontal welding techniques which had been well learned during over 130 shuttle tanks that had been fabricated with all the learning curve spent on that. And and what you do when you go to a new system, obviously, is to throw away the learning curve because you started from scratch again. And they did that, and it's proved seriously problematical, and it's become a pacing item. And, of course, because of the money that's had to go into... it into paying for the misdirection of path in terms of production and fabrication of the hardware, that's now pushing further and further the date when this first flight will occur. And that has taken money away from the development of the exploration upper stage, which was supposed to have introduced the Block 1B, the more powerful one, from the very second flight, which is the first one to carry crew. And now that has been extended out, and has had to fall back on additional procurement of the interim cryogenic propulsion stage. They've had to buy several more of those and have had to strap on the emergency detection system because it's going to carry people from the centaur program so the costs are going up and up and up because they're having to go back and buy more of the old technology because they can't afford to develop as rapidly as they would like the exploration upper stage um which was for the more powerful version of sls so it goes from bad to worse and Mm. now the block 1b is not expected to fly before 2024 in fact there's been great urgency to make sure it does fly no later than 2024 was one of the protocols put on the budget approval by congress last year so it this is really becoming i think the the um oversight authorities uh, and the GAO are going to be looking very, very seriously, and we're going to begin to see some very serious restrictive language. And I think it is not a done deal yet that we will be putting deep space exploration on the back of SLS rather than on some of these other launch systems uh, which are already flying and which are more than capable of doing the job.
1: That, I mean, (laughs) that sounds like an incredibly serious... um failure of management then i mean it's with with a decision like where where your uh, people are sitting around the table and they're talking about these vertical worlds or horizontal yeah, worlds yeah. i mean uh, yeah. uh, c- can you describe roughly i mean is, is this one of these things that that is that is decided over a sort of two-hour session or is this something that's that's decided over paper over paper over report over report what's the what's the kind of lowdown on that
2: I think it is a case of looking – it's actually a top-down decision. It always has to be, because you can argue the case for your own particular pet way of doing something, and the higher you are up the chain of authority and command, because it's very much a vertical structure, um, your working day is loaded increasingly with the political, the financial, um, and the budget – management issues which overwhelm the pragmatism of pure engineering decisions. And unfortunately, the way these decisions are made, they're all determined by finance. It was the very reason why we didn't get the shuttle we originally wanted, because Congress put a cap of $5.15 billion in fiscal year $72 on the development cost of the shuttle and a fully reusable system which would not have had the failures and the the frailties as well as the failures of the system we got that lost the lives of 14 astronauts. So right from a big decision about the conceptual configuration of a new system right the way down to determining the processes which are used in manufacturing for component elements, it is a decision which may seem really seriously a no-brainer, quite low down the decision gate, but when you get up to the final signing off of decisions, that is done by people who actually are more responsive to the financial arguments than they are to pragmatic engineering decisions. And the very reason we launched STS-51L, which was the loss of Challenger, was simply because there was an imperative driven by the need to keep launching as rapidly and as on time as possible in order to recruit payloads to the shuttle for financial reasons in the wake of an encroaching threat from Ariane. So right at the top, always, on all these government-led programs, you've got the financial imperative drives it. That's, that's one thing I came to see very, very clearly which is why I enjoyed my time up in Washington DC because I actually quite quite like those fist fights eh, metaphorically <laughs> where you had to really, really drive home the need not to take the project as a money led decision structure, but really on pragmatic engineering decisions. And you never won because it always had to come out with the top line. <laughs>
1: that sounds like that does sound like fun. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, but but this is the problem we face now with sls and i know you have alluded to this on many of our discussions matt that you know is there really a consistent need for sls it is going to be the most expensive launch system ever developed um, and that's going to reach that point even before the first flight
1: Oh man! Yeah. So, if we go from one type of management structure to another, so we, obviously this week we're right in the middle of of uh, demo mission one, SpaceX's yes. uh, uh, new human rated yes. launch system. So, yes. we're uh, <laughs> obviously yes. completely different, completely different organization. So, yes. how uh, ha- have you been seeing this particular mission?
2: well i'm I'm just absolutely in awe of those guys at SpaceX and also the way that they have been working very well with NASA because because this is where NASA works very well right down at the shirt sleeve level real engineering um, proper reference to what is pragmatically sensible rather than what works on a balance sheet and uh, and and what has to be twisted and torturously transformed just because because of the money issue here we've got a commitment um to a program which is fully cognizant of the requirement that nasa has as a customer and a lot of money has been put in to this i mean it's actually cost over eight billion dollars to the taxpayer to get spacex and boeing to this point so it's by no means a freewheeling entrepreneurial wonder story it is a a manufacturer, a supplier, who has responded to a need at the invitation of seed money to to pair off the investment and then to make a contract with two suppliers, which is Boeing and SpaceX. But within those two, Boeing has a much closer historic association with NASA, of course, than SpaceX does. SpaceX is a relative newcomer compared to Boeing and all it provided. Boeing, of course, built lunar orbiter. The lunar roving vehicle and many spacecraft, and under the companies that it has embraced under its under its name of Boeing, many of the historical greats in in the space in the space industry. But, of course, SpaceX has come as a new player, and they have really been very, very bright in that they have responded exactly and precisely to what NASA wanted. And, of course, NASA has the final say as a customer, and that is why they they are working very, very well. But even though it's cost $8 billion, compare that to the cost of Orion and SLS, which has far exceeded $8 billion now, and yet here we have an effective system that so far is working very, very well. And we are speaking, of course, while... While well, Ku Dragon is still in orbit, but it, it's just gone very, very, very well indeed. And I think the only the only concerns and the only tension in my mind I have is watching for that reentry because it's a very different shape. It's a different um, aerothermal environment that the heat shield will be seeing, metaphorically. And so we need to get that back and to demonstrate that this new shape with the down-flowering Draco thrusters, that that works well because that is crucial. And before that can carry crew, hopefully they think by July, we need, round about April, this high-altitude abort to demonstrate NASA requires this. NASA is driving the number of flights um, and also is signing off as the customer. So this is not all a- just exclusively SpaceX, but it's working with NASA at the real, real area where NASA is brilliant and is so very, very good, which is the engineering and the actual management of people doing the nuts and bolts. And it's working with SpaceX. The partnership is just fantastic and Boeing not far along behind.
1: Yeah I, I, the, I, yeah, I emailed you a question, didn't I, about the the two, the two systems where you've got... Yeah. Uh, they, they, so they've both contracted to do a certain number of, uh, of missions to the space station. When, so, when, yeah. when, when that one is... When, once those missions are over, is, there, yeah. is, is it Do they just o- open up a new contract and say, here's another three missions each, or or does it become a commercial... Or does it become a com- an actual commercial um, mm. bidding race between the two companies?
2: I don't think you're ever going to see it as a bidding race in the open. I think NASA has always wanted to, at least, against the problem that one might fail, either as a company or as, or, or as a concept in terms of the design of the vehicle, because they're two completely different designs. And it will always want to keep that. I can remember Congress, for a number of years just a few years ago, fighting hard to question NASA as to why it was funding two contractors to do the same job. And NASA said, because we're going to have to have a fallback, a backup. Uh, and, and that's a logical thing. So I think you will always keep that. But there's no doubt about it that behind the scenes, when if the two can demonstrate an effective and sustained safety program of running crews back and forth to the ISS... Each is going to be negotiating with NASA prices that will reflect the fact that there's also somebody else looking over their shoulder. I think we're a few years away from that, actually, because it's NASA does not want to go again to the point where it's actually running on a on a cost competitive basis, because that that begins then to threaten the overall safety envelope. And people begin to cut corners and take shortcuts. Uh, if it's purely a race to the bottom in terms of cost, um, I, I think it's always going to want to manage. And and in and indeed, in looking at the contracts it signed with SpaceX and Boeing, it needed to see that neither company was pairing off cost-heavy elements of their own proposal just to get the lowest bid. Because, in fact, NASA has determined how much they will get according to what they have presented. So there's a really, really seriously close match. here, And I know a number of commentators have been mentioning, uh, have been talking it up as though this is the beginning of of (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Smith being able to go into space if they've got the money. Um, You know, this is, we're not there anywhere near there yet. And, and I think it's going to be quite a few years before these companies can take these vehicles and just openly compete in an open market with each other. And, and I, I don't think when you've got the contractors serving a government customer like nasa you 're ever going to get that completely freed and and looking far down the road, of course it's only being kept alive because of the of the international space Station. What is the life of the ass mm-hmm. we're coming up pretty close to further decision gates, and there are very strong murmurings in Europe from the european union particularly that is looking increasingly to embrace the european space agency which ESA does not want um it wants to remain outside of the eu as it is now although increasingly much of its work is going on eu projects not least the navigation program but that's all all in the future i think certainly there's going to be a balance uh, with regard to how you can talk these prices down um and and I think there's going to be a control by NASA and the US government over just what these entrepreneurs can do, if only for safety and, and for regulatory standards.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming neither of these systems will be capable of getting... Uh, to the lunar gateway, or it's changed its name again, hasn't it? I can't. I, I can't it's yeah. not even LOPG anymore. But it's no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Will either of these systems be able to 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 um, deliver to that uh, to, to to lunar orbit a, a space oh. station?
2: I, I have spoken and written about the fact that this is a wonderful template for transferring upscaling into cislunar space and into, re- really, when we move to the point when the International Space Station is no more, heaven forbid, because I, I do think it's an asset worth staying with, um, then I think that... Uh, you are going to transfer those services. And I think NASA certainly wants to see this. You're going to transfer those services to the gateway, even though the gateway will not be permanently manned. This this is not going to be... It's going to provide an opportunity for human access to a way station. Um, which is in Sicily, space, a space, mm. but, it, but it's certainly not going to be the kind of regularly, routinely recycling crews and expeditions to keep it permanently manned. It's nothing of that sort, and it's very, very much smaller, about one-third of the size. Um, countries are beginning to come on this now. Canada is the first to formally mm. commit to a very long-term future with NASA aboard this concept, and I think ESA and the Russians, I think, will follow on as well as Japan um and uh, there is going to be a need for providing supplies and for taking people to and from I think with the SLS pretty well strapped with Orion I think that's going to be far too expensive to use it as as a delivery taxi for humans when they do go I see a future I think is logical balancing between the cost for government as well as for it, industry to develop a second generation Crew Dragon, which on demand, ordered ahead, would be able to take personnel to the gateway or whatever it's called by then. But I think that uh, this is now a a test period where we need to keep these... these, Well, obviously, the cargo is running very, very well indeed, back and forth now, and we've got more launches coming up for that. Um, But I think if we transfer that mode of transportation to deep space... I see no end to that, and I see it going all the way up in, into orbiting stations around Mars, because you're not going to have you're not going to be able to commit certainly SLS Orion just to taking people to the Gateway. That's going to be used for lifting modules and for heavy lift stuff mm. if it continues to be developed and applied operationally. <laughs> but but I think the the future very much is we we've, we've got to get the commercial world. Although it's semi-commercial because it's under contract, it wouldn't be doing these things were it not for a customer there, which is NASA, because these are not going to be self-sustaining economic developments. So, yes, I do see it very, very much to to the next phase, which is then beginning to supply the infrastructure support, indeed all of the support between the uh, Earth and and these destinations, first around the Moon and eventually around Mars. And of course, the amount of energy you need once you're out of, of the gravity well of Earth itself is, is, is less than you need to get into Earth orbit is required to go from the Moon to Mars. So it's merely upping the capability of the human factors for keeping people alive and safe. Uh, in that environment, that's that's the only difference between the lunar gateway and the Mars
1: gateway. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk mentioned that, didn't he, in the press press review he sort of yes, in yes, his nonchalant yes. way? Yeah, yeah, we should have a we should have a yes. base on the moon, and we should go yes. to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, it, it, it's such a weird way he talks, but it was um, yes. yeah, that was that was quite fun.
2: I thought the last five minutes of the press conference, I've never heard such eloquent, visionary, and commitment from a NASA administrator, as from Jim Bridenstine, when he declared in a very fluent and a very, very meaningful and committed way the future of the U.S. space program moving out into the solar system. And I thought that was a really, really wonderful. um, He's a good speaker anyway. He's highly articulate and and i just think if folks can go back and look at that really just listen to 5 minutes of jim brydenstand wrapping up that press conference it was really really inspirational
1: he really yeah. is turning into a fantastic nasa administrator isn't he, <laughs> He's he re- is. really good um yeah. so what uh, what's in this month's space flight and uh, what can what can people look out for
2: well the current one that we've got uh, out on the streets as they say right now is of course looking at apollo 9 it's looking at the Further operations with the uh, Chinese lunar lander on the far side. Um, and uh, I think coming up to the series of anniversaries, we will be tracking and following the various anniversaries which come. We have Apollo 10, of course, in in the May issue, which is the next issue out. And uh, we will be looking as well at reflecting back over the next few months. Spaceflight has got a number of reflective contributions from Nick Spall, um, who, who will be looking at the payback we got from Apollo, both in the social, in the political, in the technological, and also the environmental stimulus that those missions gave to a highly cynical 1960s and 1970s, when so much seemed to be falling apart in American society, with the race riots, and the burning of the cities, and the Vietnam War, and the general disaffection from technology. And it's very likely that because half the world's population alive now weren't alive at the time of Apollo. And so we need to remind people that this was a very turbulent time. This is not an all good news era that, in fact, coming through that, and that's what I'm trying to show in the coming issues of spaceflight, that uh, warts and all, while we applaud and celebrate the extraordinary achievements and the technology as well as the endeavor and the sheer inspiration that it provided for those already committed to a burgeoning space endeavor, nevertheless, it, it, it provided an opportunity to understand the value of this extraordinary Planet that we reside on, and the desperate need for us to come to terms with uh, living in a sustainable um, and balanced way with the rest of nature and the rest of the environment. So, all of these things are not shying from this, and it's not a glory sheet for the magnificence of the space program. It is that bursting through a very, very terrible time in world affairs, in the Cold War, in the Vietnam War. In the social unrest, we need to see it in the context of all of human life at the time.
1: That's a brilliant uh, place to to finish on, particularly, uh, I think it's Yuri Gagarin's birthday this weekend, and yes. of course he was the first yes. first person to really echo that sentiment, I Isn't guess, when, when, when he first saw up, up the planet up in orbit. Yes. Indeed. So uh <laughs> thanks very much uh, David for joining joining me again that was a that was a brilliant chat again I think I've learned a billion things there
2: <laughs> between, <laughs> It's always good talking with you Matt and I've thoroughly really enjoyed it and thank you very very much for that Thank you very much bye bye Okay bye The interplanetary podcast is alive It just
1: gets better and better and better doesn't he this was, this was a long episode, and I know that you wanted to talk about multiverses. So next week, everyone, we're going to be talking about the multiverse.
0: That's what I wanted to be speaking about, so we don't want to hold you on. But you're going to have to listen next week, because I tell you what, I've been watching videos, I've been reading... Matt, I
1: read several different articles. What do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, and and we've, we've been having some very good suggestions from some of our listeners as well. So any suggestions, let us know. I had a suggestion this week that I follow up on the halo drive and that really is exciting so i've been reading about that in the journal of the british interplanetary society and i should have an interview with the uh one of the authors of the halo drive paper next week so that's going to be super exciting that and, is mega exciting and i'm going to visit alan bond so in the next few days listeners. If you can get any questions, listen to those Alan Bond interviews again. And if you've got any questions, let me know. And I will ask Alan.
0: Well, in we earnest. love your interactions. And actually, Matt, this multiverse thing that we're going to be speaking about next week mm. came from when I was in LA. I saw our our brilliant mate, Andy Buse. We went, we went for lunch. He drove down from uh, Lake Arrowhead just to see me. And
1: oh. um, Well, he actually made the effort.
0: We reconnected, you know. Wow. Uh, so i tell you what, it was a beautiful thing. And one of the things he asked me was, Jamie, you know you like space? I said, yeah. He said, are we the only universe, do you reckon? And so I went, I'll tell you what, I'll do some research. So
1: there we go. Next week, check it out. ESA have released uh, a stunning piece of information this week. Uh, this is, And this is going to be our Space Fact. Space Here we Fact go. of the week. And it, Yes. Guess how much the Milky Way weighs. How much does the Milky Way weigh? <laughs> how much does the Milky Way weigh? <laughs> I like that. That's going to be a new song. How much does the Milky <laughs> Way weigh?
0: I can hear another jingle coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is that is brilliant. How much does the Milky Way weigh? It weighs three with 39 zeros at the end of it, kilograms. Or right. Or 1.5 trillion times the mass of our sun, or three duodecillion kilograms. That's right, three duodecillion kilograms. Oh God! <laughs> and that's only within uh, that's within a radius of 129,000 light years from the galactic centre. Because of course, there's quite a bit of stuff that's that's loosely bound. Like you said, the Milky Way is chomping away at other galaxies as well. It's hungry, man. It's a hung. How much? That, that's why it weighs so much because it's been eating so much. It and, is, and, and and it's, and it. This is decades of intense effort because the, the astronomers need to know how much the Milky Way weighs, uh, so that they can, uh, you know, work out stuff. <laughs> what's going on? So it, the, the previous estimates range from five hundred billion to three trillion times the mass of the sun, which is just ridiculously wild. Uh, yeah, but yes, that is pretty wild. So 1.5 trillion solar masses. So it's obviously on that larger end of it. And uh, a lot of that uncertainty was due to this uh, trying to measure how what the distribution of dark matter is in our galaxy. God, dark matter is just ridiculous, isn't it? It just freaks me out. We really ought to do a dark matter deep dive at some point. Well, I think we need to. I think we need to. People are calling for it. So, Roland P. van der Maal of the Space Telescope Science Institute, United States. So, really, I suppose Mm. it should be Roland P. van der Maal. But I should imagine. There we go. That's better. Yeah. Uh, He said, Bike, he said, We were lucky to have such a great combination of data. By combining Gaia's measurements of 34 globular clusters with measurements of 12 more distant clusters from Hubble, we could pin down the Milky Way mass in a way that would be impossible without these two space telescopes.
0: I'll tell you what's not impossible, Matt, Mm -hmm. and that's going to iTunes Mm -hmm. and giving us a nice review. And if you want to give us five stars, then just hell do it. Just
1: do it. I'm not going to stop you. And if you want to get involved with the space podcast of the century, then please become a Patreon. uh, So go and help them and then come and help us instead. If you're Elon Musk and you're listening and you want to donate a million, that's cool. Yeah, we're not going to stop you, mate. And if you're just your regular Samantha blogs listening in your living room somewhere in japan on your year out then get involved you can still email us if you email info at interplanetary.org.uk you can get involved i'll invite you onto the discord we can all have some fun
0: let's just have some fun so matt i'll tell you what i'm off to the galactic center of the universe via an acoustic bubble what are you up to
1: I'm going to go downstairs and cook my children jacket potatoes with chili con carne.
0: Oh, wow. Have you made the chili con carne from scratch? Uh,
1: In fact, Loretta made it yesterday and it's going to be reheated chili con carne, which is some some ways ways better. better. (laughs) It's actually better, actually.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope that there's some vegetables on their plate, Matt, is there? Well, there's vegetables in it. You know, there's some peppers and tomatoes, obviously, so... I'm gonna to have to send a care package down to the boys. I'm worried about their, um, you know, micronutrients.
1: Well, they're teenagers. They don't like vegetables. It's so irritating, <laughs> right? That's why you hide it in chili. <laughs> anyway, yeah, exactly. We love you, listeners. Um, take care of yourself and each other. Indeed. Love you lots. Bye, spot cats. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>